Morning, guys. Take this out if you have it. Look at it. Um, it's just a joy to see all of you here again. So good to see that when it would be more comfortable and convenient to stay in bed, we're all here together listening to the Word of God. So that's really good. I'm just really glad. I praise God that you guys are here. That's a real blessing to me and the rest of the elders. So thanks for coming. Uh, let me pray and we'll get started, okay? Lord, again, we are so thankful that we can come before you and we can even address you. Lord, you are a God who has kindly allowed us to come before you. And we remember this morning that you have allowed us to come before you because your son was the one who redeemed us from the penalty of our sin. I praise you and I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that you would prepare our hearts and soften our hearts. Lord, as we examine these disciplines, Lord, may this be you speaking to us. And may it be you refining us and you informing us of how it is that you want us to live before you, how you want us to shepherd our hearts and our homes, and how you want us to interact in this church and grow biblically and intellectually for you. So, Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with this time. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What I want to do this morning is just use verses from Scripture that will help us remember the disciplines. Verses from Scripture that will help us see how important it is for us to examine our hearts. How important it is for us to shepherd our homes well. How important it is for us to think rightly about ministry. Um, We'll start with our heart. Discipline one is our heart. We always know this. And um, we want to remember what Scripture says about the true condition of our heart. And so I'm just going to read some verses. I want you to think about these and jot some down if they appear meaningful to you. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? What this tells us is that there is nothing more adept, there is nothing more skilled, there is nothing more competent at deceiving us than our own heart, the very heart that's within us. Because our heart is so skilled and so adept and so good at deceiving us, um, we need to guard our heart. Proverbs 4.23, which is the verse that the ladies use as their theme verse for Wellspring, says... Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all discipline and all diligence, because the springs of life flow out of it. If we watch over our heart, and we understand that when we watch over our heart, we need to inform our heart with truth every day. And this truth is only found in God's Word. And there's a a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that is, just so meaningful for me and how I live my life. It says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we will be shepherding our hearts well. The benefit of allowing God's Word to reside in my heart is a life that is increasingly pure. It's an increasingly pure life when we do that. Psalm 119 is a a great psalm. It's about 176 verses, and I think all but about five of those verses mention God's Word. This is one of those verses that does mention God's Word. It's verse 11, and it says, Your Word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. 
So when we treasure God's word in our heart, it keeps us pure, it keeps us sinless. So the first place we take that purity is into our home, which is our second discipline. This is the most important place where we live out the gospel. We have lives, we have jobs, we have other obligations, but the most important place where we live out the gospel is in our home. And we need a properly counseled heart in order to do this well. We can't function properly in our heart well at all, in our home well at all, without a heart that is well shepherded. Think about what it looks like to live out your life in your home with a heart that is not shepherded well. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Imagine what it would be like to try to do that with a heart that is not shepherded well. If you don't shepherd your heart well and prepare yourself well by meeting with the Lord, you still have this task in front of you, but it will just be a task to love your wife well. But when you've prepared your own heart, meeting face to face with God, and you have cried out before him to reveal himself to you, and he has, and you take that situation, you take that conditioning of your heart into your marriage, you can love your wife the same way that Christ loved the church because you're desiring to give up yourself and give of yourself for her. One question that I have is, how likely is it that your love for your wife will be, Christ, will be like Christ's love for the church when your heart is not led by the word? Think about your relationship with your kids if the Lord has blessed you with kids. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. That's an instruction that's incumbent. It's, it's placed upon all fathers. Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Think about what that looks like when your own heart is shepherded well. You're going to have correction opportunities every day. But those correction opportunities will be tempered with grace, they'll be firm, they'll be kind, they'll be gentle when you've shepherded your heart well. And I know this from my own experience, what it looks like when you don't. You're just looking, you're looking for the, the sin, you're looking for the disobedience, you're looking for the error on your kid's part, and you jump right on it. And it's very technical, and it, it loses its heart, it loses its shepherding flavor. Think about the words you use with your kids when your heart is not shepherded well. They're impatient words. They're demanding words. They're, they're judgmental words. When your heart is well shepherded, they're words that are encouraging. They're words that remind them of the truth of the gospel that you want them to believe and you want them to embrace. If they do believe, you can come to them with what they do embrace and you can come alongside them rather than confronting them. If you have a roommate, think about Romans 12.10. It says... Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. Your roommate eats your food, or he does something else that is offensive to you. He uses something that's yours, or he forgets to pay you back, or something doesn't work out well, and you need to address it. And so you go to him. You can go to him in one of two ways. You can go to him with a heart that is shepherded well. And you can say, I want to be right with you. Um, there is something we need to address. Or you can go to him with a heart that has not been shepherded well, and you go to him in a very demanding way. There's no reconciliation. There's no desire for for unity there together. So a well-informed and a well-counseled heart has a very direct bearing on on how it is that we relate to one another as roommates. I know that. I remember my life when I had roommates. um, I saw that same thing evident in my own life.
Our third discipline here is our ministry. And we're going to talk about the way in which we, we function in the ministry that God has given us here. And God's design for ministry is that the man who has disciplined his heart and his home is ready to function well in ministry here at this church. I've used this verse before. Ephesians 4, verse 16 says, The whole body causes the growth of the body. But there are some conditions that are in place on how the body must be in order for it to cause the growth of the body. And that is what you find in the middle of the verse. Being fitted and held together by every joint supplying according to the proper working of each individual part. The way that we work properly is that we function well when we shepherd our own heart, we prepare our own heart with the word. Apart from that, we just can't function properly when we meet with one another, when we serve, when we hold babies in the nursery. If we're not shepherding our heart properly, those are not meaningful experiences. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Whenever we're in any ministry situation, whether we're leading a small group or we're doing anything else in service to this church, we're the kind of men that are imitatable men when we have prepared our heart. We step into ministry, and the ministry is not a task. The ministry is relationships with people who are working together for God's purposes and God's glory. And when we shepherd our heart well, we're, we're ready to engage with them in the right way. When I shepherd my heart well, and I, I get to a small group on Tuesday nights, I'm ready to share my life with people. When I don't shepherd my heart well, and I get to a small group on Tuesday nights, I'm preaching at people. And there's a, a vast difference. And so any ministry that we have is given to us by God, and, and we treat that ministry opportunity well when we prepare our hearts well. Our fourth discipline is the qualifications. It's the, the heart of the leaders at this church that every man be a deacon qualified man at this church. And those qualifications are outlined in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're verses 8 through 13. It's a really good passage to read regularly and just keep those things in front of you. And just examine yourself next to those things. I just want to use one of those as an example of what, what it looks like to enable the shepherding of your heart to have an influence on your qualification as a man. That is, one of the qualifications of a deacon is that he's a man who is not double-tongued. He's a man who has one message. And so if you're not shepherding your heart well with God's word, you can actually be a man who is not double-tongued, but it'll be very robotic. It'll be, I am going to endeavor, I am going to force myself not to have two messages. I am just going to have one message. And your speech will be guarded, and it won't be from your heart. But if you're a guy who shepherds your heart regularly by reading the Word, by discoursing with God in prayer, calling out to Him, confessing your sin before Him, you're a guy who has a heart to speak one message because of the message that God has spoken to you. So we want every man in this church to pursue the qualifications, but to, to pursue the qualifications with the right heart and a heart that comes from spending time alone with God. The fifth qualification is the hermeneutic, the fifth discipline. And the discipline there is all about how we sharpen ourselves, how we sharpen ourselves well so that we're increasingly qualified to interact with people and interact with God's word. And we do that here at Build. We do that in H3. We do that in Shepherdology, which hopefully is starting next year. We do that at Grace Bible Institute. We do that in lots of different places here. 
We want to be men who know how to handle God's word. We want to be men who are always growing in our ability to handle God's word. But we don't want this to be an academic pursuit. And there's a character in the Old Testament that helps us see the godly way to pursue that. And he's more of a minor character, but he's a character who has a lot of influence on the way we think and the way we pursue God's word. And that's Ezra. Ezra is a guy who who lived during the exile. Um, So he lived towards the end of the Old Testament time. And Ezra chapter 10, chapter 7, verse 10 says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This was a man who wanted to be equipped. This was a man who wanted to be very knowledgeable and very familiar with the word. But he set his heart to study the law, which means he wasn't looking at it like a trigonometry textbook. He was looking at it as God's revelation to mankind, and he pursued it with his heart. Verse 10 is a really good verse because you actually see several of the disciplines in that one verse. You see discipline 5 where he was studying the law of the Lord, but you see disciplines 1 and 2 in that he was practicing that. He was practicing that in his own heart, in his own life, and probably in his own home. Then you see discipline 3 in that he was teaching it. He was actually taking what he was learning, he was teaching it. And then lastly, our last discipline here is the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. We gather together like this because we want to magnify the glory of God. We want to express the glory of God. We want to remember the cross of Christ. The only way we can do that is through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want to be people who aim at those things. When we come together, we don't come together for programs. We don't come together for ministries. We come together so that we can give the glory to God that he deserves. We can do that by remembering the cross and Jesus Christ and the role that he played and by living out what looks like the transformation that has taken place inside of us through the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells in us. And so, the Lord willing, we will do that. And the way we will do that is through the purpose at our church. And we'll be people who desire every day to be used by God to draw people into this church. And once people are here, to be used by God to build them up. And once they're built up, to be used by God to send them back out. Whether it's into their own workplace, or their own communities, or their own homes, or the other side of the world. So that's just another view of our disciplines. I hope that that's helpful to you. It's helpful to me to remember what Scripture says about those things. So let's keep those in front of us today. Um, just a reminder um, to our guys who are leading discussion groups that we're going to have a short meeting afterwards today. Um, those of you leading discussion groups. Um, so we'll, we'll just do a 10, 15 minute meeting and then uh, let you guys get going after that. So here's what we're going to do. Number one, you need to make sure that you have your handout for today off of the back table. And John, since, since you're back there, if you don't have, if you're sitting here and you don't have one of the handouts, can you put your hand up and John will just bring it to you? Um, so you can, everybody good to go? All right. And here's the deal. Um, we're going to put our heads down and we're going to go. Okay, we're not going to look up. We're just going to put our heads down in the Word of God and we're just going to go. And so at some point, if you have to go, you can get up and go. 
And then you'll find us back where we are when you come back, okay? So uh, just make yourself at home. Get up and get down. You're not going to distract me. You're not going to be a, a distraction to others. Just make yourself at home. But get your sheet out for today, your worksheet on biblical decision-making and the fallacy of finding God's will, okay? Let's get that ready. Get a sharp pencil ready to go. And as I said earlier, this, this, this will probably, you could be on a roller coaster ride at, so, at some points in this. Um, and so you may need to, um, you may have a question that comes up as we're going. I, I encourage you f- for a little bit because uh, to maybe wait with the question, maybe jot it down on the margin. Uh, what we're going to do, I'll give you the big overview of the outline and then you, you, that way you'll kind of see, well, maybe if my question, if I have a question earlier on, maybe it'll get answered at the end. Um, our, our whole first part is just going to be to study God's will in Scripture. We're going to look at what Scripture says God's will is in Scripture, okay? That's all of point number one. That goes for a few of my pages. Number two, then we're going to talk about man-centered attempts to find God's will in decision-making. That's the, the bad part of the study. That, this is where we're going to... This is where you're going to probably find um, some things that you do that may not... You may not want to keep doing them. Um, you may... This is where the rubber's going to meet the road a little bit, okay? The third part, though, the end, is, is biblical decision-making. How do you make decisions that are informed by Scripture? So... What we're going to do is, is we're going to talk about what Scripture says God's will is. Uh, Eric, can you get the door because it's locked? I didn't unlock it. You might want to prop it open a little bit. Um, so we're going to talk about what the Bible says God's will is. And then we're going to kind of dismantle the way a lot of Christians think about making decisions. That could be a part where you're feeling like you're being dismantled a little bit. Hopefully by God's word, not by me. But... And so you're going to have questions that come up, but then we're going to end with, here's, here's a way to, to do decision-making in a biblical manner, okay? Do you understand kind of the flow of things? All right, with that in mind, let's pray, okay? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for um, being able to just come before your word. Thank you that you have given us written revelation of you, what you are like, Um, what we can know about your will and what we can't know about your will. And Lord, thank you for the times when we come to your word and your word affirms um, the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. We're grateful for those times. It's encouraging. It's evidence to us that you are at work in us because we know that we would not be in alignment with your word if it were not for your indwelling spirit within us and your work in our lives. And God, we also thank you for the times when we come to your word and we find that we are out of alignment with you. Um, We need those times. Those are more difficult. Um, I pray, God, that if the decision is not centered outside of them in Scripture and even outside of the one who might want to say, hey, I've got a question about the way you made a decision. It's not centered outside of them. When the decision is centered within the recesses of you, another person's skepticism of your decision can easily be brushed off because, well, they don't know what you know. They didn't do the research. 
and they just don't understand what's going on inside you. You see, that's actually a very convenient method for making a decision when you want the criticism phase over. Listen, guys, we talked about the, the heart is deceitful above all else. Watch out for this. You will resort to a method in a decision-making process that you'll pull out of... Every single one of these is a trump card at some point. These wrong ways of making a decision is a trump card by you, the decider, that you can pull out. When you want the criticism phase just over, look, I I did the data. I did the research. I, I, I was wise about that. Criticism phase over. I'm just making the decision. There's a danger inside each one of these that should make you afraid of you and me, of me. Number two, the lucky dip approach with Scripture. This person dips into his Bible randomly, or, and sometimes even systematically, and, and finds a verse or a phrase which spurs him on to make one choice or another. Let me give you an example. And I wish I could say this is a stupid example. Somebody's weighing the option, should I, should I stay with my job in Arizona or should I leave? the state. I don't know. It's hard for me to know. I, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. And the next morning, that guy opens his Bible, and in his Bible reading plan, he's in uh, McShane's Bible reading plan. His, the next day, he reads Genesis 12, verse 1. And God said to Abraham, go forth from your land. <laughs> and you're laughing. And it is so true, is it not? Go forth from your... There it is! God's will for my life found before I needed to make the decision. I mean, how, how much clearer could it be? I mean, and it was the Bible that told me this. I mean, you use, I use the Bible to make my decision. But what marks that kind of a use of the Bible is a wrong view of the Bible and how to interpret it and how to apply it. Here's what God says about how he wants his word handled. 2 Timothy 2.15 Present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That God, would that God who demands that kind of accurate handling of his word, would he give approval to your interpretation of Genesis 1 or 12.1? And the application of that text, which suddenly turned Abram into you. You say, but, but God led me to that verse. How do you deny that? How can you argue with how I didn't, I mean, it was just my reading plan. It's just where I was the next day. It's incredible. Are you sure it's incredible? Are you sure it was God? Because God's you in that text was Abram, not you. And that would be a twisting of God's word and a secret interpretation of that passage that no one else would ever see or come up with. Here's what I found as a pastor, as an elder. Try to question that kind of decision-making that is lucky dipping in Scripture. And the, many times the response is, well, how can you question what... I mean, how do you... Don't you see how the Lord put all that together? Even though Scripture is used this time in the decision-making process, it is still a decision that is rooted inside the believer. Why? Because the interpretation of that passage is rooted inside the believer. I'm Abram. I'm the one who's supposed to go forth from my... And nobody else knows that interpretation except the little guy inside. 
plain reading of the text, anybody just doing a plain reading of the text, nobody would consider that. And if the interpretation was secretly revealed within the believer, then it becomes much more difficult for you to challenge it because you're not inside. And another criticism of your decision, if if that's the way you do it, it, it can be easily brushed off again because your internal mystical feelings and how that verse just connected with you at the right moment, it's just simply not understood by others. And once you, guys, here's the danger. Once you start ignoring the context of God's statements and you arbitrarily snip out only the words that you want to hear from God's word, you can really make the Bible say anything you want to make the Bible say. It's a method that allows you to dodge legitimate criticism in the name of Scripture. It's a trump card. At some point, when you just want the criticism phase to be over, it's a trump card. you got to stop criticizing me. I've made my decision. Uh, God's word was right in front of me. I'm so sorry. I'm making a decision. Number three, the prophecy approach. There's two approaches to this. There's an extreme approach and there's a popular approach. The extreme approach is actually some Christians make their decisions by consulting people in the church whom they believe are modern day prophets. Uh, we probably don't interact with very many, uh, although I, I'm sure each of you know some people who actually go to the prophet who's at their church and they help get their decisions made through that kind of person. The more popular form of this decision-making technique sounds like this. God told me. God spoke to me and I, I knew that I needed to do this. That's the popular form. That, that's a claim That's a claim to direct verbal revelation from God for a specific situation. Um, Let's think carefully about prophecy for a moment as it appears in Scripture. And I'll I'll refer you back to last Sunday's sermon. Um, Were you guys here for that? Everything that I said there would go with what I'm saying here. I might say a couple of... uh, I won't say as much as I said last week on that. But, But who gets to define what prophecy is? God's word gets to define what prophecy is. Not me, not you. Yes. I guess I What am I going to do now? <laughs> I'm going to sound like the bad guy. No, go ahead. Sounds good. Sounds really good. I was thinking about it, and I figured I should just come and talk to you. Yeah, that sounds so Jeff-centered. That sounds so unspiritual. See, here's what we're trying to do. What are we doing? I'm going to kind of monopolize on your thing a minute here. It's 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 a great example. What do we want, guys? We want God at the center of our decision-making process, don't we? We don't want to be men running off on our own away, but. When we talk that way, God told me to tell to come talk to Tom. Now I'm really who gets to decide when God talks to somebody what it is, who that kind of person is, what the standard is. Who gets to determine that? Us? No. God's word does. It's called prophecy. And so what all I'm saying is 
Though you may just think, the guy I need to talk to is Tom. Just say that. I want to go talk to Tom. And you know what? That doesn't mean that you're not spiritual. And it doesn't mean that God is nowhere in your thinking. It may mean that He is everywhere in your thinking and you just want to go talk to Tom. Welcome to my life. I want to talk to Tom every day about decisions in front of me. It's the way to go. Talk to Tom. Okay? So I kind of hijacked that. Is that what you're... Yeah. Just, it's okay to just say... And by the way, if, if the heart, even in Christ, you're in a mixed condition. This is why that first lesson is so important. You're in a mixed condition. You have new desires and you are still weighed down with sin. And that inner man that is you, that heart is still desperately wicked and deceptive. Not like it was before because it had nothing of God. But you are still easily duped by sin in your own heart. So what was that hunch? I have no idea. And if God doesn't direct me to try to figure out what those hunches are, then I'm not going to worry about it. It's not. A hunch is a hunch. Yeah. No, but I'm just thinking as you're talking about that, scripture does have commands to seek out wise counsel. Yep. Yeah, and that is, that's going to be one of our uh, steps in the biblical decision-making process part. It's great. All right, so let, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 real quick. You're not too far from there right now. Go to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. We're talking about prophecy approach. Here's verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the prophet raised up by God speaks only God's words because God said that's what he would do. And he wasn't wrong then when he prophesied. Verse 21. You may say in your heart, well, how will you know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, notice what God says about a prophet who claimed to receive revelation from God, but occasionally missed it here and there. That one was a fraud and that one was a liar. That one was not to be feared by the people. You can go back to Deuteronomy 13. Verses 1 to 5 and see that as well. Watch this. If a prophet or a dreamer rises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, he even does something miraculous and the sign comes true. Well, then you better just listen to everything that guy says because he had a word from God. He had a sign and it came true. You better listen to that guy no matter what, right? No. If he says, let's go after other God. You say, I don't care what miracles you do. This is out of alignment with God's word. And I'm not listening to you. In fact, uh, we have to now kill you if we're Israel. Okay. Um, so let's just go outside and find some rocks. Um, so so-called modern day prophets. You can, you can listen to Benny Hinn. You can listen to Joyce Meyer. You can listen to any of them. And they will actually tell you that they are not always right. They will actually tell you that. 
because it's obvious to everyone. And yet, Christians somehow still let them hold some kind of a category of prophet status over them. What does God's word call that person who claims to be speaking for God, but they're not right? There's only one classification for him, and it's false prophet. And he hates that. It's an abomination to him. That doesn't compute with God's word at all. Let's go to the New Testament. Look at an example. Acts 27. You remember this one when Paul was on the ship and they're about to die, they think. And he says, "Um, I've been told by an angel that all of you are going to make it. Keep your courage, men, for I believe that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Now, why did he say that? I believe it will turn out exactly as I have been told. How did he know that? Because he is a true prophet. And God revealed it to him. And so it's going to come out exactly the way it is. That's the standard. As a prophet and apostle, Paul spoke with certainty in his situation in that moment, something that you and I cannot do. He was a true prophet. His prophecies never went wrong because he was a prophet as God defined prophecy. Anybody today who thinks they are a so-called prophet need to live by this standard. They need to stop what they're doing. Because our definition of prophecy doesn't match God's definition of prophecy. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 5. I want you to see this one. This is so important, guys. Jeremiah 5, verse 30. Jeremiah 5, verse 30 and 31. Here's how, you don't have to wonder how God thinks about these kinds of decisions being made or these kinds of prophecy claims. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. What will you do at the end of that? This is appalling and horrible that prophets speak when God hasn't talked to them, and my people love it. God actually says not to listen to such a person. Here's what I found. Look, I don't rub shoulders with those who go to so-called prophets who are not in the extreme prophecy category. I'm sure some of you guys do. But here's what I do here on regular conversations with, with even people at Grace Bible Church. God said to me. God told me. And it's a different category. I'm not trying to say that the intent of that person is the same intent as Benny Hinn. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, I think as Christians, what what do we want? We want God at the center of our decision-making process. We want Him to get all of the credit. We don't want to be trusting in ourselves. And one way that it sounds like helps communicate that is, well, God said to go talk to so-and-so. And I'm saying that's fine. But you don't get to be the one to determine what you are. God's word determines what you are when you say that. And God's word says you're a prophet. Or a false prophet. You can't have it both ways. Okay? We, we want the benefit of God speaking directly into our particular situation. But we don't want the consequences and the standard by which God speaks about prophecy in his word. Nick. Do you have a short list of scriptures that you go to to repeat the 
Yeah. Um, I do. I'll give you my... It's the short list that I used on Sunday. Um, and I'll give you a couple more to add to. If you want to write these down, here's, what I, here's all I did on Sunday, guys. I, I didn't go to a book. I, didn't, I just kind of went from left to right in my Bible. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. Prophecy. Let, let God's Word define what prophecy is. So Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22. Uh, back up, 18 to 22. Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 22. 1 Samuel 3, 19 and 20. 1 Samuel 9, 6. Jeremiah 5, 30 to 31. Jeremiah 23, 16. Jeremiah 28, 9. Acts 21, 11. And Acts 27, 25. And guys, those are just some. There's just way too many in the Old Testament. And if you didn't get those, come up to me afterwards and I'll give them to you. But here's what I found as a shepherd, as a pastor. I don't rub shoulders with those extreme prophets, but I do rub shoulders with people who think that God is telling them to do stuff a lot. That method of making decisions, it gives the appearance of putting God at the center of the decision-making process. But actually the one who is at the center of that decision-making process is still the believer. The decision is centered within the believer and centered within a subjective experience that is nearly impossible for anybody else to question. And that's the danger in it. Isn't that convenient? When you just want what you really want really badly and you want the criticism phase over, what do you say? Well, God said to do it. Yeah. You can tell me this is yeah. Um, oh, that's the, uh, the, the his prophecy that your sons and daughters will prophesy. Yeah. What, what is what does Joel mean in his day? What is the context for that? That is the day of the Lord. That is a day coming when Israel will be restored, according to how Joel outlines all of that in his letter. So Israel will be taken into the dumps in judgment. They will be brought out into great fruitfulness. And at that time, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Peter quotes that to the best passage he could try to even go to, to try to explain what was going on at Pentecost in the Old Testament was that the one who was at work in Pentecost was that same spirit that Joel talked about. He's not trying to equate Joel two with what's going on at Pentecost, but he's saying in the future, that spirit who will one day at the day of the Lord have this, your spirit, your sons and your daughters prophesying, that spirit is this spirit at Pentecost. Well, guess what? Yeah, sons and daughters will prophesy. They will. Not in whether or not they should go to college. Or which college, or which car to buy, or which person to marry. That's at the end. And more revelation will come from God, from some prophets. So that's how I would answer that. Sure. Okay. Um, so that's a very spiritual sounding way to make a decision. Well, God told me. And if you question that, how do you sound? Very unspiritual. So it's a nice trump card to be able to, to pull. 
again, I think what, what's, what is going on with most Christians is they just really want God at the center and they have hunches and ideas and they want to give credit to God in everything that goes on with every step. He, I make my plans, he directs my steps and their way of describing that is by saying, God told me. And what I want to say to that is you, only one person gets to define what that is. And that's God, and he calls it prophecy, and there's a really high standard. And I don't think you want to live by that. So let's clean up the way we talk. Doug. Is it safe to say that somebody tells you, God told me to tell you about the saying, where, where is scripture? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I'll be honest with you. What I do nine times out of ten the first time when I hear that is I don't even address it. Right. Or I say, what do you mean? And just try to get more information. Because, you know what, the last thing I want to do at every single point is like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Even though I believe, no, he didn't. But, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to the person. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to walk with them through a process by that. If I get a sense that this is a pattern in this person, they're in my small group, I'm going to pull them aside. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to say, um, what do you mean when you say that? And who gets to define what prophecy is? I got a list of verses. Let's work through them. And then we'll start that. Okay? So, the prophecy approach. Number four, the peaceful approach. Watch out. If, we've all been safe so far. We've all been safe so far because I, I wouldn't say God told me. Okay, maybe I did once a while ago. But we all do this one. This is a very common approach to making a decision. Well, we just had a peace about it. And so we... Bought whatever we bought. We did whatever we did. I just had a piece about it. Here's what that method assumes. Listen carefully, and I'll qualify it for you, I promise. What this method assumes is that God communicates His unrevealed will through a sense of inner calm. That you can find out His unrevealed will when you finally settle down. And whenever you feel settled down, now you know what His unrevealed will is because you have a piece about it. It must be God's will. It must be the right decision. I had a piece about it. Here's my question. Where is that method taught in Scripture? Where do you find instruction from God that says, you will know what my unrevealed will is when you feel peace? It's not taught anywhere in the Bible. The problem, of course, is that inner peace is very difficult to discern. Do you know that elders actually hear men say stuff like this? I had a peace about leaving my wife. Guys say that. Christians say that. Scripture completely contradicts the very choice that they want to make, but they trump it. They got a trump card. I got a peace about it, you see? Now, we're, we may not be over that far, but guys, I tell you what, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from where we are as we talk about the peace of God and something like that. Having a peace about a decision might actually say nothing about whether it's a good decision or a bad one. In fact, as popular as the whole peaceful approach is, the Bible never speaks about peace as a ground or a prerequisite for decision making. Let me give you an example. Did Jesus pray in the garden the night before until he had a peace about going to the cross? The man sweat drops of blood. There was nothing peaceful in that moment. And evidently, according to Mel Gibson, there's some like weird snake guy walking around in the garden tormenting him too. 
nothing peaceful about that. I just. I mean, he was wrestling with how does a holy member of the Godhead become separated from another holy member of the Godhead? God, is this what? Do you think Jesus enjoyed the thought of that? No. There's nothing peaceful about that. Listen, some of my most difficult decisions I have to make and things I have to do as a shepherd, any one of your elders would tell you this. I never have a peace about it. I I can be convinced it's right to do, but I don't feel calm about it. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I'm I'm stirred up. I don't want to do it. I pray Jesus would come back before I have to have the conversation. I've all kinds of things. Peace is not a prerequisite. Now, qualify it for me. Philippians 4, but the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, is peace important? Yes, but is that verse teaching that peace is a prerequisite before making a decision? No. You may never feel at peace about what's happening to you. But God will give you peace as you follow him. Do you understand? There's a difference, a huge difference. And here's what I found. This too is a decision-making process that's centered inside man and not in God, even though it claims that God is the one who gave the peace. How can the giving of peace be doubted by anybody outside the person? You don't know me. You, you, you don't know what's going on inside me and what God's done. You see, that's just a convenient method when you want the criticism phase to be over and you just pull the peace trump card. God gave me a peace about it. Subject closed. Guys, beware of that. Number five, the opened or closed door approach. This needs qualification as well, but you'll understand if you've ever used this, we, we talk this way. In fact, I'll show you how Paul talks this way in, in the Bible. If you've ever used this method, you've probably been heard saying something like, well, God opened all of the doors uh, for me to get this new job. God opened all of the doors for Grace Bible Church to get this building up on 7440 South Priest. Is that true? Yeah. Does God open doors and does he close doors? Absolutely he does. Yeah. So what are we talking about? What we mean when we use that as a prerequisite before making a decision, what we mean is this. If circumstances make it easier for me to do something, well, then that decision must be the right thing to do. Because when it's difficult, then God's against me. But when it's smooth, then I should make that decision. So it's an open door. It's easier for me to get it done. Well, let me ask you this question. Where is that principle taught in Scripture? It's not taught in Scripture. As a way for making decision. That's interpreting circumstances through open doors or closed doors. And that's completely arbitrary. What is that actually determining? What is it that's actually determining if something is an open door or closed door? It's your state of mind, how you view it. Was it an open door for Jesus to go to the cross or a closed door? Should he have gone? What about, was it an open door... For Joseph to be sold into slavery, because the Midianites just came along, right? It's an open door. So it was God's will that he should he should have just decided to go with them because the door was open. Everything just lined up for David. I mean, he just happened to look down, and there's Bathsheba. Was that an open door? I mean, can you see how this can get just upside down and sideways real quick? 
my friend Joel talks about what as a what missionaries oftentimes go through. A missionary says, we've been having so much trouble raising our support. It, it must not be God's will for us to go. Closed door. Really? Well, maybe God is just testing your perseverance. Does God ever do that? He does. What if Paul made decisions about each of his next phase of the gospel mission on the basis of whether or not an open or a closed door appeared before him? Let's see. In Philippi, he was beaten and put in stocks. In Thessalonica, there were riots against him. Those riots followed him then to Berea on the second missionary journey. In Athens, he was mocked. Would you call each one of those open doors for ministry? Look, guys, it's completely arbitrary to decide that something is not God's will on the basis of its difficulty or ease. The fact that something is easy doesn't mean it's wise or good to do. As we talked about, the door was open indeed for David to commit adultery with Bathsheba, but that doesn't mean he should have done it. Does God control circumstances? Write down 1 Corinthians 16.9. Does God control circumstances? Does he open doors? Listen to these. 1 Corinthians 16.9. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. A wide door has been opened to me. 2 Corinthians 2.12. Paul says this. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus and so forth. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, listen to what he says. We're trying to qualify this so that we understand what we're talking about. Paul says, pray this way, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. Listen, does God open doors? Yes. Absolutely. He closes doors. Does he instruct you that you, can, you, you can't make a decision until you know if a, if, a, if a pathway is going to be opened and therefore easier? No, that's not what's being taught here at all. So we acknowledge God opens doors, God closes doors, but it's not a prerequisite for making a decision. Do you understand? Man, it may be really difficult for you to shepherd your daughter through whatever situation she might be going through. And it may just be one obstacle after another in front of you, in front of you. And you could say, oh, it's a closed door. Does that mean I shouldn't? It's God's will for me to not care for a daughter, for you to care for a daughter? You make a door, right? Number six, the sign-seeking approach. This is similar to open a closed door. Oh, and again, what I found in that, guys, what is that? Whenever you want the criticism phase over, well, God opened the door. Subject closed, moving on. I made the decision. John. Is it appropriate to talk about opening the door when you look back? As you look back on it? Yeah, when do you discover the door is open? In the moment as you're going, well, the door is open to do that. And even then, once you're done, on the back side of it, you might look at it and go, I wish... That wasn't the right thing to do. So you could do that, but not necessarily. Yeah. 
Alright, number six, the sign-seeking approach. This method for finding God's unrevealed will looks for special events or coincidences before making the decision, believing that God will secretly then clearly communicate through that event what decision should be made. It was a sign. How do you argue with that, right? Where is that principle taught in Scripture? Where is it clearly, if it's so right and so good for us to follow and make decisions that way, where does Scripture guide us to do that? In fact, the only thing you're going to find about signs and instruction on it is what Jesus says about those who crave for signs. It's not good. Right? And we all interpret those same signs exactly the same way all the time because God puts a stamp on them, right? And we can all read it, my sign from God. Don't get it wrong. Now, how do we all interpret those same signs? That's not the way I saw it. I mean, how do you know? Bridger. Yeah, what does Proverbs say about when you uh, draw straws or you cast lots? Every decision is from the Lord. Let me ask you this. When you're down to, and we'll get to this at the end. That's a good, I'm glad you brought this up. If you've looked through the disciples, okay, you've got 11 and you believe that you're supposed to have 12. And you've gone through all potential candidates and two guys come forward and you could please the Lord with this guy or you could please the Lord with this guy. If I reach into my pocket and I grab a coin and I say, heads or tails, Did I just determine that, oh my goodness, we were doing so well, we were using biblical criteria, and then you pulled the coin out, and now you just moved God completely out of the... It seems that way, doesn't it? You know, Matthias, call it in the air. (laughs) Sorry, but, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to mock that. This is, it's, it's serious, but at some point... When you are brought all the way down through and you've looked and there's been, you get through the whole biblical decision-making process and all that's left is two equally good options, you've got to find a way to make a decision. And even if you draw straws, even if you cast lots, even if you flip a coin, who is over every decision? Even if you just say, I'm, I'm thinking of a number, pick be, between one and ten. Um, when, when I graduate, I'll give you an example. I haven't had very many of these in my life. Um, there, there are petty ones like this every day. <sighs> Cheerios, Wheaties. <laughs> I mean, we, there, there are petty decisions like that every day. But the big decisions in life, I've, I, I haven't had a whole lot of them where there's been equally two good things. One, I'll give you an example of one. Um, here's Tom. If any of you have any decisions you need to make... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I graduated seminary. I started filling out applications for different youth pastor positions across the country. I had 12 applications. Two of them quickly rose to the top, one in Bakersfield, one in Phoenix. Um, I started to meet with the elders of the church in Bakersfield. I started to meet with the elders at Camelback Bible Church. And I loved both of the elders' boards. Loved both. They, they liked me. Um, I, they had me come and teach their youth. I came up and I taught. It was fruitful. I came over to their church and I taught. They came down to Grace Community Church in California. They met with me. Um, we seemed to like each other, get along well. 
um, they both then offered me positions at the same time. It was the same amount of money. And Kim and I were at a place where like, I'm talking to my elders over me at Grace in LA. I'm like, what do I, what do, I do? Which one? And, and, and they would say, well, I, you know, I don't really know. I think you'd, either way, it looks like it's a, it's a good way that you could go. Do you know what Kim and I did? Honey, where do you want to start a family? Bakersfield or Phoenix? And we moved to Phoenix. <laughs> and I'm not saying, look, I'm not, all I'm saying is there are sometimes you'll be at some decision making points where you've, you've, you've sifted through everything, biblically speaking, you're not casting lots, you're not feeling a peace, you're not trying to hear from the Lord, you're not looking for a sign. And you'll just get down to the end of it. And I think that's where the disciples were. We've got two good guys here. How are we going to do this? Cast lots. That's not unspiritual. It's a, it's a way of making a decision that actually says, I am not going to determine if it's heads or tails. God did. You're in. Um, we can talk more about that later. Sign-seeking approach. Um, yet, one more time, this method for discovering God's unrevealed is actually centered not even outside the person in the sign. It's rooted inside the person's interpretation of the sign, which might not be agreed upon by anybody else. And so what I have found is, have you ever tried to question somebody's interpretation of such a sign? Good luck calling it into question. When you get to that point, that person is beyond, oftentimes, is beyond the, the point of no return in the decision. They're just going forward. Criticism phase is over. Evaluation phase is over. I'm just going with the decision. All right, so six different man-centered approaches. Um, not one of these methods is taught in Scripture. Not one of them is explained. Not one of them is modeled positively or sanctioned by the Bible for discovering God's unrevealed will. Why? Why don't you find any one of these or anything like this in the Bible to try to find God's unrevealed will? Because God does not desire us to find his unrevealed will. It's that simple. It's just that simple. So that makes every one of these methods for, or for decision making actually unbiblical. Because every single one of these methods is centered inside the decision maker and it's left to the arbitrary feelings and internal interpretations of events. So you know what we need to do, guys? We need to extract our decision-making process from the whole idea of trying to find God's will. That's where I say, that's where I call this the fallacy of finding God's will. Just take it out of that. We don't need to try to find God's unrevealed will. Let's do the best we can. Let's make good decisions or have good process of making decisions and let's go forward. And you say, well, how do you do that? That's number three, decision-making informed by Scripture. The key to decision-making isn't finding the unfindable, which is God's unrevealed will. The key is making sure you've got some good steps to go through. Number one, you want to make a, a good decision informed by Scripture. Number one, in God's strength, be obedient to God's revealed will. Be obedient to God's commands. What am I saying here? Generally speaking, here's what I'm saying. Be an obedient to God decision-maker. The first place to begin is to make sure that where God has clearly revealed his will, you're being obedient. You're following him. Where his revealed will is clear and it is, obey him. Right? 
Walk obediently there. His commands, his broad intentions for his people. Listen, making a careful decision about something that is unrevealed by God, all the while being sloppy with what he has revealed is a problem that needs to be addressed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why would we be so ultra-sensitive to finding His unrevealed will and completely insensitive to His revealed will? That's a problem that needs to be addressed first before any decision is made. Do you understand? So first, where God has revealed His will in the commands of Scripture, in His broad intentions, by God's grace in your life, by His strength, with the new equipping that He has given to you in Christ, through His Word, be an obedient Christian. You'll make deci- the decision-making process will become a lot easier. An obedient man has a much easier job making decisions than a disobedient man does. Okay. Number two, pray for wisdom. Difficult decisions begin with prayer. My friend Joel says, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. We must ask God for His wisdom right from the very beginning. Write down Proverbs sixteen three. Here's what it says: Proverbs sixteen three. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. That's a way of saying, commit it to God. Pray to God. Give your plans to Him. Submit them to Him. As you prayerfully commit your works to Him, He'll establish whatever He wants to establish. Right? Oftentimes, He directs your steps down a different path than what you planned. You ever had that happen? Oh my goodness, that's life, is it not? Write down Proverbs 16.9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So you're praying, I'm committing my works to you. I think I've got an idea where it's going to end up. And then you end up someplace else. And that's God. And nothing went wrong. That's just the way that it is. And it's a joy to try to discover the mystery of it all as you're going, right? But all of that begins by humbly committing your decision-making process to God. And prayer for wisdom is how you do that best. Remember what you're not praying for. What are you not praying for? You're not praying for an open door. You're not praying for peace before to make the decision. You're praying to be at peace with God. Yes, of course. Uh, You're not praying for a word from the Lord. You're praying for God's wisdom. That means you need a daily intake, guys, of God's word and primarily Proverbs. Proverbs needs to be a book that you are cycling through all of the time in your life because it's God's wisdom recorded for us. It takes time to absorb that wisdom and time to learn by that. Uh, it takes time to learn to live by that wisdom. It takes time to pray for how that wisdom should shape your decision-making process. Sometimes we just get in too big of a hurry in our decision-making process and we just feel we need a quick answer. Your, your homework today is going to address that. Listen, lucky dipping in Scripture doesn't take a whole lot of time. Okay? How does this apply to my decision-making? I don't know. Let me find another one. That one will work. Decision-making done. It doesn't take a lot of time to do that. But praying, committing your work to the Lord, that takes time. And maybe that's part of the reason that we turn to such methods like the the wrong ones that we talked about. Because we're just in a hurry. Got to make a decision. Uh, The light just turned green. I guess that's a sign. I should make the decision. I mean, we can just look at anything in front of us at the moment and determine that's God telling us to do something. We just don't want to slow the decision-making process down to find out what wisdom from God might apply to the decision-making. Sometimes that happens. 
So start the decision-making process by acknowledging that God is in control and ask for wisdom. So in God's strength, be obedient to God's will, uh, his revealed will. Number two, pray for wisdom. Number three, gather information and counsel. Listen, do you need to make a list of pros and cons in your decision-making process? Yes. You just don't want to purely and only do that and make a decision as if God's nowhere speaking into the decision. So make a list of pros and cons. Uh, Proverbs is all about careful thought. Listen to this. Proverbs 14, verse 15. I want you to hear this. This is, this is a great passage. Proverbs 14, verse 15. The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. That's what you're doing with a list of pros and cons. You're considering your steps and you're being sensible. Proverbs 21, verse 5. Write that down. Proverbs 21, 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to prop to poverty. Be diligent. Um, let that work to your advantage. Knowing all that you can about a decision is helpful as you weigh your decision. And again, one of the problems for believers today is that they're just in too much of a hurry in their decision-making process. It takes time to research. Don't be in a hurry. One of the ways to get the knowledge or information you need is by getting it through counsel from others. This is what Doug brought up earlier. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Listen to this. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, plans succeed. Chapter 12, verse 15 of Proverbs. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Listen. Uh, you pull the trump card and you don't listen to anybody else. You don't want to be a fool who's wise in your own eyes. Get counsel from people around you. The reason that we need counsel is this. Are you ready? Here's why we need counsel. You and I are not omniscient. That's why we need counsel. We have limited information. We have limited experience. And we have all of that along with blind spots. So having a dependable believer provide counsel to us that's beneficial. Counselors can help us to remember biblical truth that we have forgotten about, that we're uh, diminishing because we're so focused over here on something else that can help us to better shape our decision-making process. Counselors help us to see more accurately the situation we're in. We're all wired a little bit more or a little bit differently. Some of us are inclined to, in decision making, only see the rosy side. I'll just, every decision is going to turn out just perfect and you just have a rosy view. Some of those people need to have somebody come along and poke a hole in it sometimes and go, ah, eh, not really. And then there's people like me that they're sure that something goes wrong in every decision that's given in front of them. And I need SMED in front of me saying, actually, you know what? Not every decision you've made in the past has ruined your life. And we all are a little different, but we need counselors around us. It's important to make sure, though, that the counselors, guys, listen to this. The counselors you go to are the right kind of believers. The counselors you go to need to be the right kind of believers, stable believers, mature believers in Jesus Christ, knowledgeable, biblically speaking, believers, godly, obedient believers, and that they are biblical decision maker. Listen, a guy may be godly and love the Lord, but if he's hearing from the Lord, you don't want to go to him. Just don't go. Sometimes we only, can I just be honest with you on this? Sometimes we only want to go to the people that we know will affirm our desire. We do that. Sometimes we do that. I, I, let's see, I'm not going to go ask him 
But I know that he, this other guy, he'll affirm what I'm thinking. Because I, I know the kind of guy he is. I know what his interests are. I know what his counsel is. So um, and I really want that. So I'm going to go ask him and not him. Can I just be honest? We do that. Can I tell you as elders, we see that on a monthly basis. Okay? Um, you can do that in a number of ways. We choose to get counsel from someone that we know wouldn't hesitate to encourage us to make the decision for the desire we want. We talked about that. Or we might approach someone who knows nothing about us to begin with. And then we can selectively lay out the information that they need to know, just the right pieces, so that they will look at that and go, well, yeah, I guess that looks like a good thing. Do you know what we have learned as elders? We call them parking lot conversations. You leave church on a Sunday, you're walking out in the parking lot, and somebody grabs you. Hey, I've got a question for you. Here's what I'm thinking. And you haven't had any real conversation with this person about that before. Here's what we're facing, and we were thinking A, B, and C, and, and then we also thought about X, Y, and Z. And So what do you think? You know what we've learned as elders? Speak very little into it. Because you're in the parking lot walking across to get to your car, and you, you, don't, you don't know the condition of the person. You don't know what's going on. You're hearing only what they want you to hear. Um, so we have ways of getting the kind, using counselors in a way, justifying, well, I got counsel. Yeah, you went to a guy who doesn't even know you. I've been sitting with you for three years of your life. I know where you're at. I know what you've been up to. I know what you struggle with. You didn't come to me. You went to a guy who doesn't even know you. And you asked him and you laid out the information in a favorable way. And of course he agreed with you. Of course he did. Don't comfort yourself thinking you got counsel. That was foolish. We do that sometimes. So be careful. Um, I saw a hand up over here. Tom. So is it uh, safe to say, Scott, that in the Old Testament, God spoke differently? He spoke to the prophets, but they didn't have the canon. And so once the canon is closed, the prophecy goes away. So God doesn't, you know, it's like somebody going to the Baptist, you know, the Bible, we get into our hands every time. But now it's closed again, so now we have everything for God. They used to live in yeah yeah and this goes back to what I, I talked about on Sunday that um, in Ephesians 2 um, the apostles and the prophets the apostles and the New Testament prophets are the foundation Paul says and how many times do you lay a foundation one time um, and so he's very careful with his choice of words. And so um, now, so yes, the foundation has been laid. And as those apostles and prophets died off, I don't think you see God speaking and adding more revelation to the Bible. Um, now, God did do that, though, in the Old Testament. For a while, all they had was five books. And then what happened? Joshua was the mantle of leadership and leadership of Israel and, and even prophetic leadership was given to him and the book of Joshua is written. What about First Samuel? What about Samuel himself? How do we know about judges in First Samuel? We know because of Samuel uh, and others who, who wrote. So God at points continued to add to revelation uh, that was coming. Um, and sometimes because God was working on earth through a nation. That's, that's unusual, is it not? In human history, that's unusual. 
that God would actually work out his will through a nation. Sometimes he would reveal his unrevealed will through the priests or the king or some other kind of prophet or a leader um, for a battle, for this way or that way. Um, but prophets came at different stages to keep adding to the revelation base of the canon. Um, and we were at a point now, and there were different points where what's interesting is Deuteronomy 13 uh, or is it Deuteronomy 4? Don't add to my word, don't take away from my word so that you can obey my word. So they were to be content, Israel, in the wilderness with five books of the Bible. Don't add to what I've said, don't take away from what I've said. Because if you add to my words, you won't be able to obey my words. If you take away from my words, you won't be able to obey my words. And so at every point that God gave the revelation that he gave, his people were to be content with it. And so now, as he has continued to do that, and then New Testament apostles and prophets come, and now the foundation has been laid, and it's done, we should be content with what God gave to us. Um, and not add to it, not take away from it. In fact, the last book of the Bible is very clear. Don't add to this book. If you do, I'll add the plagues of this book to you. Don't take away from this book, or I'll take you away from judgment. So, um, yeah. Let's talk about number four. We've got to get finished here. All right, so we've talked about being obedient to God's commands. We've talked about praying for wisdom. We've talked about seeking counsel from others. And by the way, I don't put these in order of like, you can only do them this way, one, two, three, four, five. You can, these are going to happen. This, this is a fluid process, right? Number four, does the Bible speak directly to my decision? Before you make a decision, you need to determine if God's revealed will, his commands, actually speaks specifically directly to the situation. We need to make sure that God's revealed will in his commands, they either affirm the decision before us or they deny the decision that's before us. How much better is it, guys, to spend your time in decision-making searching through Scripture for what he has revealed than it is for us to search for what is hidden from us? Um, here, can I give you a couple examples? A young believing man might be debating whether or not he should marry um, this girl, Susie. Susie, oh, she is, Susie is amazing. She's kind, she's exciting, she's attractive, she's intelligent. She's not a Christian yet, but as a Christian man, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry her. Well, 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine lays down a divine principle regarding marriage. A Christian is to marry what? Only in the Lord. So that young man, he might seek for signs. He might seek for, uh, he might make a list of pros and cons. He might feel at peace. He might see it as an open door. He might lucky dip in scripture and he might even hear that God told him so. But all of that would only be what? A complete waste of time because scripture has already spoken to it clearly in a command. There's no wisdom and counsel against the Lord's command in that. In the same way, God doesn't say in the Bible that you should work for business X or business Y. However, if one boss expects you to cook the books for him so that he can cheat on his taxes, well, then God revealed his will because he has spoken clearly in Romans 13, verse 6, pay your taxes. Jesus said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And you know you can't accept a job like that or stay at a job which demands you to disobey God's clear commands. In the same way, um, a man might debate over which job to take. Should I work for this company or should I work for that corporation? There's really no debate whether or not he needs to look for a job, though. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12, man needs to work. 
And if he's not working, he shouldn't eat. Okay, so there's no doubt about whether or not a man should work. Might not know exactly which place to go to work, but man needs to work. If God has spoken directly to an issue in his word, then there really actually is no decision. The decision's made, right? Just do what God said. And God has made some decisions easier than others. They're directly addressed in his revealed will, in his commands. Uh, in that case, we, we can find God's will because it's revealed for us, okay? Um, but number five, we need to, in our decision-making process, find out if God's word speaks indirectly to my decision. Decision-making becomes easy when the Bible says something like, don't steal, right? Ah, that's easy. That's a divine directive, um, and it's clear. But not every situation is as clear, and the Bible might not directly speak to your specific situation. Should I make this difficult phone call now or tomorrow? But that doesn't mean that God's word in that case can't be a lamp unto my feet. Whatever decision that we face, it's certain that God has, guys, you can be sure of this, he has indirectly spoken to it. There is not a situation that will ever come up in your life that he has not indirectly spoken to. But if we are not aware of what his word says, if our knowledge is weak, then our decision-making process is crippled. Okay, we know basic, do this, don't do that, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, okay, I've got that figured out. Um, but where we remain ignorant in, of God's word, it leaves us gasping for breath at points in decision-making process because we just don't know the indirect ways God speaks to us through his word. So to be a wise decision maker, you must be familiar not just with obvious direct statements from God, but you need biblical instruction which might indirectly guide your choice. Can I give you an example? A young man is debating whether or not to spend the night at his girlfriend's apartment. Uh, as elders, we deal with this. Okay, So this is real life situation stuff. A young man's debating whether or not he should spend the night at his girlfriend's apartment. Now, he knows 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, it's your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Therefore, his plan is to sleep on the couch. God taken care of, obedient to the Lord, I can make that decision. Right? He doesn't want to violate God's direct command regarding sexual purity, but is don't fornicate the only thing that God has said about sexual sin. Has the Bible said anything else about sexual sin? Well, how about Romans 13? In a context where Paul was concerned about purity, here's what it says. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Don't put anything in front of your flesh that will draw out its lusts. What about Proverbs 5.8 when Solomon says, don't go near the door of her house. Do you know what happens when, when most of the time when you, when you bring indirect statements like that on, to bear on it? Do you know what you'll hear a lot of times from, unfortunately? You're, you're legalistic. I'm not violating scripture. I'm not going to sleep with her. I'm just going to be on the couch. And now you're legalistic because you're telling me to, you're warning me to not do something that scripture hasn't strictly forbidden. 
That's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking as an elder. Because I'm trying to help, we're trying to help you as a brother in Christ, we're trying to help somebody to see how Scripture does speak into the situation, and you're trying to warn them, and they're just, in all honesty, at that point, what do they want? They just want something so badly, they're just going to do it. And it's foolish. The Bible is bluntly realistic about sexual sin like that. You don't want to give yourself an unnecessary opportunity to fall into it. Um, it doesn't say which car you should buy. Scripture doesn't tell you what car you should buy. Um, but the Bible does say a lot of serious things about debt, and that speaks indirectly to the decision, does it not? Do you know what the Bible says about debt before you make a purchase? You need to know, and so forth. What are you looking for when, you, when you're doing this? What does the Bible indirectly say to my situation? What are you looking for? You're looking um, specifically into God's word um, to find the source of the pressure inside you that wants to make the decision. You're looking for the pressure point in you. You're looking at the motive. What's going on? Because see, a guy could say, well, I don't want to sleep with her, but I want to get close. And when you bring up other passages, like make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust, now you put your finger on the, they don't want to, that doesn't apply. So you're looking for pressure points. You're looking for a motive for making the decision. You're looking for the true goal. Do you want to be pleasing to the Lord? You're looking for obvious consequences. You're looking for hidden consequences. Now, you got five steps here. You could break these down. You could add more. You could combine some of them. You got be obedient to God's revealed will. Be obedient to his commands. Pray for wisdom. Gather information and counsel. Does the Bible speak directly to it? Does the Bible speak indirectly to it? When you make your decision-making process filter down through all of that, how many drop out below and you still not sure what to do? Not very many. Except petty ones like Cheerios or Wheaties. Right, Or sometimes really big decisions. Should I take this job? Should I take that job? I think we can please the Lord in this job. I think we can please the Lord in that job. There's a good church for me to be involved with there. There's a good church for me to be involved with there. Um, I, I see, from all I can tell, it appears like it could be two good things. At that point, when you get to there, Scripture doesn't deny it, doesn't forbid it. It even indirectly opens the door and affirms you towards both of them. At that point, what do you do? Number six, humbly follow your desire and decide. Pick. Flip a coin. Does that sound all of a sudden really unbiblical and unspiritual? Think about what you've done. You've prayed. You've, you've, you're obeying God's word. You're gathering information and, and, and getting counsel. You're, you're searching the scriptures for where it speaks directly. You're searching the scriptures for where it speaks indirectly. What kind of a man have you been striving to be in that decision-making process? And now you're down to the very end on a few decisions in life where you actually say, I'm going to go with this desire, not that one. That's not unspiritual. That's a spiritual man. What happens if you make the decision, though? You get into it and you're like, ugh. Is that a possibility? Yes. Welcome to a Genesis 3 world. And you know what? After the fact, you might get into it and you might go, you know what? I see now where I was, um, there were some areas I was unwilling to investigate. And I was foolish. I see that now. 
And guess what? Guess what you learned? Something invaluable for the next big decision that comes your way. Sometimes things will happen and you'll, you'll make a mistake and you will, something will be completely out of your control and you just gotta live with a really difficult decision now. It's a Genesis 3 world. There's no guarantee. There's no decision making process, even a biblical decision making process that will guarantee that everything will end up rosy like heaven while you're still on earth. It won't. Okay? So if there's anything, guys, uh, we'll wrap this up here. Um, and if you guys want to ask questions, um, you can do that. Um, or if you guys want to have a, a, a few minutes with your small groups, you can do that. Um, if there's anything that I would want you to hear from your elders in this, it is, we think that you are the kind of men, and I think we're the kind of church that we want God to be at the center of our decision-making process. We do. I don't know anybody who truly loves Jesus and gets up and says, you know what? I'm not going to listen to what he says. I'm going to do what I want to do. Are we capable of that? Absolutely. But what if there's anything that we would want is for you to think carefully about the way you communicate how you want God to be at the center of your decision-making process. There's ways to say that, and there are ways that are not good to say that. Right, um, and I think that's generally what goes on with a lot of Christians: um, the peace approach, the open doors, the signs, the God said thing. Um, I think those are attempts by well-meaning people to communicate that they want God at the center of their decision-making process, but it's not the best way to do that. So, if anything changes in your decision-making process. Um, it, it might be the way that you talk about how you make your decisions. Okay? John. What if we've made some of these mistakes mm-hmm. and we're living in God now? How can you encourage us? What should, how should we proceed? You're going to have a lot more opportunities to make more decisions in front of you. Learn what you can. Sit with somebody. Walk through, walk through with a mature believer. Walk through your decision-making process you didn't go through. Learn everything you can from it that was good, everything from it that was not good, and ask for help in applying and making, uh, the, you know, making changes. Look, there's, there's some consequences that you just can't change. There's some consequences you can change. Um, how, how can I live under the effects of these consequences in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? There's hope. Look, is there a way to please the Lord after making a bad decision? Yeah, there is. There's a way. Ask for help. Draw near to somebody who's a wise believer. And then trust that tomorrow's gonna, you're gonna wake up and you're gonna have to make a bunch more decisions. How do you wanna make them? Um, do you have any specific thoughts or ideas, John, that came to your mind? Um, my heart just goes up to someone who's in a situation that, you know, you can't swim away. I mean, yeah. you're in a situation and it's a mess. You walk down a path. How do you look back and consider all of this? A person could be very no, not at all. If, if, if you've made a bad decision, um, there is a way for you in that spot you're in to be pleasing to the Lord. And um, you can easily, quickly be surrounded by 12 guys, 10 guys, 20 guys that want to help you figure that out. That might mean repenting of some things still. 
it might not mean that. It might just mean here's how you're going to endure the consequences for a while. But you can be pleasing to the Lord in that. There's a way to be honoring to the Lord in that. Um, so, yeah, we're not trying to... I, gosh, you guys, I don't want to discourage you. I want to only equip you and have you be encouraged for decisions that are in front of you uh, that you need to make. Um, and as we talked about at the beginning... Um, other people are impacted. Your wives, guys, your wives are impacted by the way you make decisions. Um, here's a way for you to bless your wife by making biblical decisions. John, what else is on your mind? Yeah, just, where am I supposed to put this in my binder? We're on a roll. Keep it going. It's good. Yeah. You, John, this is one of the decisions you can't go wrong at this in any one of them. So, all right. Any other? Any questions, guys? Uh, any other thoughts or something you want to add to a, a clarification? Something that's really bothering you? I'd want you to feel free to ask that as well. Tom. Yeah. 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 I mean that that's huge. Um, when you can when you can say to somebody when you can say to your kid, uh, I did that too. Now let me tell you some things. <laughs> that's huge. Um, the church needs people like that who have made bad decisions and have learned from. Them. What else? Any other thoughts or questions, comments? Concerns. Okay. I'll tell you what. Let's make sure that um, your small group leaders or your discussion group leaders have your homework. So get your homework out, guys. Um, and if you have any to hand back, guys, you can do that. So don't leave until you've seen your um, discussion group leader. Let me pray, and then you guys can be out of here, okay? Heavenly Father, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about this. Lord, I pray that you would um, bring only encouragement to the men in this. Um, that, that um, Lord, it, it just, your word clarifies the whole decision-making process for us. It doesn't tell us, it doesn't bring clarity by telling us every single decision we should make, but it brings clarity on, on how we should view your unrevealed will. And Lord, there is plenty for us to work through in decision-making that helps us to make a wise decision, a a decision that's pleasing to you. And Father, we're still going to make poor decisions even when we don't want to. We're going to sometimes in our stubbornness and in our sin, we're going to make what we know to be a bad decision. I pray, God, that you would help us to be humble men in that, to be quick to um, confess and to turn away from that when we become aware of it. I pray, God, that you would help us to come alongside each other as good brothers, full of compassion for one another, um, knowing that we sometimes have to live under difficult consequences from bad decisions. Lord, help us to be a blessing to our, our wives, to our children, to our parents, to our siblings when we make decisions. Help us to instruct our wives and our children and our households, Lord, that we live in with this truth that we even learned today. 
so that we make good decisions and glorify you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for coming. So glad you were here.